us. We are starting um, the book of Philippians. Uh, we started it last week at introduction, and today we're venturing into the first few verses of it, and we trust that you'll be with us through this study. The Bible says this, Philippians chapter 1, verse 1 through 5, Paul and Timothy, bond servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ, I thank my God in all my remembrances of you, offering, always offering prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. You may be seated. Father, we want to thank you for leading us to the book of Philippians as a church to study together. We pray that it would be monumental in the life of the church here at Grace. That we would find this church as a church that's a brother church to us, a sister church to us, Lord. We would be those that when people think of and when they write to and when they're in participation with, they think of in great joy, Lord. So, Father, we pray that you teach us much through the word of God this morning, Lord. May you meet us, may your spirit help us, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. There are many things written that come out of prison. <laughs> Through the years, there have been great things written. It is amazing that God will sometimes capture men in prison. He will save them. I've recently been involved with that myself, seeing uh, a gentleman come to know the Lord in, in prison. But there's been also a lot of people put in prison for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the things they write are astounding. And there's something about that isolation and that persecution, because in those cases, they're often there uh, because they've been in prison for the name of Christ. And what comes out of them is gripping and overwhelming when you read some of it. And I, I thought I would read just a few things or talk about a few things that have come out of prison through, down through the ages. This one came out of prison just uh, a little over a month ago on September 12th. This is written from a, a man named Pastor Saeed. He is a, an American pastor who was a missionary in Iran, and he was imprisoned for preaching the gospel there. And his little daughter's birthday was September 12th, and he wrote this letter to her. He says, My dearest Rebecca Grace, happy eighth birthday. Now, some of the things that he said in here are not just maybe a normal, what you would see a normal dad writing to a, to a child, but a family that has been deep in the study of the word of God, and so it will be deep. My dearest Rebecca Grace, happy eighth birthday. You are growing so fast and becoming more beautiful every day. I praise God for his faithfulness to me every day as I watch from a distance through the prison walls and see pictures and hear stories of how you are growing both spiritually and physically. Oh, how I long to see you. I know that you have questions why, and you have prayed so many times for my return, and yet I am not home yet. Now there is a big why in your mind that you are asking. Why is not Jesus answering your prayers and the prayers of all the people around the world praying for my release and for me to be home with you and our family? The answer to the why is who? Who is in control? The Lord Jesus Christ is in control. I desire for you to learn important lessons during these trying times, lessons that you are carrying now and for the rest of your life. The answer to the why is who. The confusion of the why has, all, why has this all happened, and why your prayers are not answered yet is resolved with an understanding who is in control, the Lord Jesus Christ, our God. God is in control of the whole world and everything that is happening in it for its own, for his own purpose, for his glory, and we'll be working it out for our good according to Romans 8.28. Jesus allows me to be kept here for his glory. He is doing something inside of each of us and also outside in the world. People die and suffer for, for their Christian faith all over the world. And so many wonder why, but I want you to know the answer why is who. It is for Jesus. It is worthy of his price he paid for us. And he has a plan to glorify himself through our lives. I want you to read the book of Habakkuk. He had a same, he had a same question that you have. But see that the Lord answered him in Habakkuk 2, 3. The vision that comes and does not delay on time waits 
for it. Wait for it. Mommy and I have always had big desires to serve Jesus and a great vision to, to be used for his kingdom and for his glory. So today we pay close attention because God who created us has called us to do just that. And so I want you to know that the answer of all your prayers is that God is in control. He knows better than us what he is doing in our lives and around the world. Therefore, declare as Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did in Daniel chapter 3, verse 17 and 18. If that is the case, our God whom we serve, he's quoting Daniel here, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the golden image which you have set up. He goes on to say, and, and learn and declare, just as Habakkuk did, that even if you did not get the results that you were looking for, God is still good. And he is willing, he, is, he deserves our praise for his holy name. He quotes Habakkuk 3, 17 and 19, clearly a book he has been studying in prison. He says this through Habakkuk, Though the fig tree may not blossom, no, the fruit not beyond the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, the, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flocks may be cut off from the fold, and there is no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will, I will joy in the Lord of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on high hills. So then, my beloved daughter, Rebecca Grace, I pray God will bring me home soon. But if not, we will still sing together as Habakkuk did, hallelujah, either separated by prison walls or home together. So let Daddy hear you sing a loud hallelujah that I can hear you all the way here in the prison. I am so proud of you, my sweetest, courageous daughter. Glory to God forever. Amen. Kisses and blessings, Daddy. This man's still in prison. Prison, when we're set apart from the freedoms that we have, often bring about incredible truths. And here this man, just uh, less than a month ago, or a little over a month ago, wrote. There's another great prison allegory that was written that I love dearly. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. I don't know if you've ever read it. If you haven't, you should. Pilgrim's Progress was written by John Bunyan. He wrote it in around February 1678 when it finally got published. It was written while he was in the prison of Belfordshire, Belfordshire, Belfordshire um, County Jail because he was in there in the violations of a, a covenical act that prohibited anybody having religious services outside of the Church of England and preaching a gospel on Christ alone. They threw him in a prison for over a dozen years his first time. And most believe that Pilgrim Progress was written during this first prison because he, went, he got out and they threw him back in again because he wouldn't recant. And he wrote, the, he wrote this book, this story, this allegory of Pilgrim's Progress. Do you know Pilgrim's Progress was so important to uh, Christianity as it moved west that it was said for a hundred years, man carried a Bible, a hymnal, and the Pilgrim Progress for a hundred years. If you've never read it, I would invite you to read it. Uh, find it a bridge copy if you like, or call me and I will turn you on to some websites where you can read the whole thing abridged. It is worth reading. When you read John Bunyan's works that he wrote outside of prison, they're very good. Don't, don't get me wrong there. But they're nothing like what he wrote when he was in prison. See, prison brings out of us something that uh, comes from the heart of man. And that's my point. As we turn to the book of Philippians here, now we're into what we call the prison epistles. There are four epistles written while Paul was in prison here in Rome, and we're going to look at that in Acts 28 in just a minute. He wrote the book of Ephesians. Probably wrote it after Philippians, because he sent Timothy to Philippi, and then he went on to Ephesians, and then Paul wrote a letter. So he probably wrote the book of Philippians, then wrote Ephesians, and then wrote Colossians. Colossians was a... a booming now church that was grown that he had never been to, but he had trained the men that planted it. And then he wrote the book of Philemon, a slave that come, had come to Christ and had uh, ministered to him. And he sent a letter to Philemon for his release, that he was now a brother in Christ. And so these are the, what we call the prison epistles. 
Look with me at verse 1 in our text. Paul says, I, Paul, and Timothy, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Here he starts off to write to this letter, uh, write to this church a letter that is inspired. And, and I want you to kind of set the scene. Last week, if you were here, we kind of went through Acts 15 into 15 and 16 to kind of see the scene that was going on there, how the church, church became birthed. That was probably somewhere between AD 49 to 51, maybe closer to 51, I would believe, probably in somewhere in there. So Christ has uh, been killed and hung on the cross, buried and raised and ascended and showed himself to the church and ascended on high. And Paul has received Christ and he's become his apostle and he's out there on his second missionary journey and he plants and starts the church in Acts chapter 15. Now, as he writes this book, it's anywhere from 10 to 12 years later. He's already been on a third missionary journey. Now he's in Rome, and we're going to see that here in just a minute, in prison, in a house arrest, and he's still ministering to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be clear here. Certainly, Paul wrote many letters. You would not have a love for a people that you saw suffer for the Lord Jesus Christ that you would not write often to them. But it is interesting that God chooses to inspire this one. This letter right here, out of all the letters he probably wrote to the church of Philippi and many other churches, he chose to inspire this one. So this is unique. And I, I think it calls our attention to the fact that we should look at this. We should want to know this because God put, through the Holy Spirit, breathed, produced this letter through the Apostle Paul and its uniqueness. So roughly 10 to 12 years after he planned it, he wrote this. Now, I want to turn to Acts 28, because I want you to see what's going on when he writes this, because this is fascinating. This is the last chapter in the book of Acts that Luke has written. After this, um, there are other epistles written, the, the pastorals and, and possibly Hebrews, if Paul wrote Hebrews, um, are, are written. But here is the scene that's being set. He is now been before the Roman councils, Felix and others, and, and he is now sent to Rome. He has to appeal to Rome because the Jews are still accusing him that he has violated and he's deserving of death. It wasn't an easy travel. We don't have time to read all of 28, but you can read this. He, he travels along and they end up getting shipwrecked. And they end up on this island of Malta. And there, out of all the people, he, he, he sees that they're all safe coming off this wrecked ship. And they're there sitting, drying out, doubtlessly, by a fire. And Paul grabs a bunch of sticks, you remember this? And he grabs the sticks and he goes to put it on the fire and a viper comes out. And it's this little viper over there, he's really nasty. He, he, he's a drop dead if he bites you type of viper. And he comes out and hangs on his hand. If you guys don't know me, I'm not a snake fan. Um, it gives me chills just reading it uh, this week. And he shakes it off into the fire, and the people say, certainly this guy escaped the shipwreck, but now the gods are going to get even with him, and he's going to die. And they sat there and watched him. He's going to die. Oh, he must be a god, <laughs> they began to think. But Paul, in his beautiful way, it's worth reading later, just ministers to these people. In fact, deals with one of their leaders who's sick. He just constantly giving the gospel out. And he begins to preach to these people. And he finds brethren, and he starts to meet with them. But his whole goal, just like God said, and, and keep your hand there, I want you to go back to Acts chapter 9, just briefly. I want to show you something that God is in control of all that's going on here. Turn to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. Ananias is very scared of Paul here. He's just got saved. He's still blind. He's coming to Ananias. And God says, I want you to take care of him and get him healed up. I'm going to send him out. Ananias is saying, God, we've heard, verse 13, all this harm he's done to your people. He's putting people in prison. He's seeing people go to death. And, and he's, he's nervous about it. In verse 14, he says, look, he's got permission from the authorities to do this. Look what God says to Ananias in verse 15. But the Lord said to him, that's Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before Gentiles 
and kings and sons of Israel. Verse 16, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Wow. I wonder if that's, God's writing that about us anywhere. To church, as individuals. I must show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. See, suffering and the glory of God have always gone hand in hand. And Paul is one of those who is going to display that for us. So that helps you understand why this process is going through. The, the, the guys that first he went through, Felix and Augustus and, and those guys, uh, I can't think of his name, um, <laughs> they said he's, he's innocent. But the Jews kept crying for him to be put to death. And it was all part of God's plan to get him in front of Rome, to get him to Caesar's, to get him to Caesar's house to explain the gospel. So look with me at Acts chapter 28, verse 14, and we'll pick it up there. He's sailing along. Now they're back going again. They got the good winds behind them. They're leaving the island of Malta. They stop in another place and gather some brethren, but they keep moving towards Rome. Verse 14, and there we found some brethren. We were invited to stay with them for seven days, and thus we came to Rome. And brethren, and the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there, as far as the market of Apipius, and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. So there's already brethren there in Rome. There's people who have heard the gospel and they're being saved. And they gather, verse 16. And when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers, a soldier who was guarding him. So it's called house arrest that he was under. And after three days, Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And when they came together, he began saying to them, Brethren, though I had done nothing against our people and for, and, or the customs of our fathers, yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. And when they had examined me, they were willing to release me because there was no ground put me to death. But when the Jews objected, I was forced to appeal to Caesar, not that I was, had any accusations against my nation. For this reason, therefore, I request to see you and to speak with you, for I am wearing, now notice this, this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. So he is under house arrest. It's not like the jail in Philippi that we looked at last week. It is a little, probably a little better conditions. People can come and visit. In fact, many did. He's writing freely. Most likely soldiers are getting saved who are getting, doing their time chained to him. But notice what he says in this verse. I want you to catch this. For I am wearing this chain for the sake of the hope of Israel. Now, brothers and sisters, what is the hope of Israel? Or, or should I say this? As Pastor Saeed said, who is the hope of Israel? Who did Paul preach? See, he saw him not only the hope of the Gentiles, but first and foremost to the hope of the Jews. So Paul always went to the Jews first. That was his custom. That's what got him in trouble. But here and even in prison, as he's under house arrest and he's shackled to guards, he calls for the leaders of the Jewish sects in the area and brings them. And notice what he begins to do, verse 21. And they say to them, they actually respond to him, we have neither here received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here to report or, sport or spoken badly before you. So the news had not reached there of what they thought of Paul. But... Now, here's what they're saying. We desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. Now, listen to this. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. So this preaching of Christ had moved around the globe, around the known world, and they did not like it. This is being preached against. This is not something we are encouraged by, but we're willing to hear you. Verse 23 and when they had set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers. It's amazing. He's got a church while he's imprisoned. And he, he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God. Now listen to this. And trying to persuade them concerning who? Jesus. That's the hope of Israel. Jesus. Notice what he was using from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. He didn't have a New Testament. He had the Old Testament. So he's opening his Bible. He's proving from the Old Testament that Jesus is God. He is Savior. And he has been the purpose and the forethought and the promise of God to bring rescue to the nation of Israel. And he's preaching this to them. 
Verse 24, praise God here, some were being persuaded by the things spoken. But there's always another group, isn't there? But others would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after Paul had spoken one, part, one parting word. Now listen to what he says. The Holy Spirit rightly through the prophet Isaiah said to your fathers, go to this people and say, you will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For your heart, for the heart of this people has become dull, and with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, and otherwise they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and return, and I would heal them. This is his last comment to him. You hard-hearted men, God has sent me in chains to give you the hope that you need, and you're going to reject it. And he quotes this text out of Isaiah to them. In verse 28, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will also listen. He has said this repeated times. Peter has said it too. Because you have hardened your heart against your God, who sent Jesus to rescue you, now we're going to the Gentiles. In verse 29, And when he had spoken these words, the Jews departed, having a great dispute among themselves. And look at this, verse 30. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness and unhindered. It is the book of Philippians that says, that he says, pray for the household of Caesar. Pray for the Praetorian guard. He had such a profound effect on national government because he stood for the Lord Jesus Christ in a very difficult place to stand for him. So this is the scene that's going on here. Turn with me back to Philippians. This whole idea of chains and struggling that he's going through here is marked down through the passage. Look at verse 7. It says this, For it is only right for me to feel this way about you, because I have you in my heart, since both in my imprisonment and in my and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers of grace with me. So there's a term. Look at verse 13. So that my imprisonment in the cause of Christ has become well known throughout the whole Praetorian Guard and everywhere else. Look at verse 14. And the most of the brethren trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment. Far more courage to speak the word without fear. Verse 17, the former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. This is a prison epistle. This man's writing from being chained, and though it is, is a little better place than Philippi, it's still not easy. Still not an easy place. And God said that he was going to put him through this for his glory. Now, notice that back in verse 1, one thing that's fascinating, again, we're still introducing this book and trying to get our mind around all of the flavor of it, is that he doesn't use his apostle term here. It's interesting. Some of the books, he, he uses this apostle term to, to denote authority given to him to write this letter. But here he doesn't do that. He says, Paul and Timothy, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He includes Timothy. Remember, he picked Timothy up on the way to Philippi? on his second missionary journey. So now Timothy's been with him for 10 to 12 years. He is a fellow laborer. In fact, he calls him here this fellow bondservant. And it's interesting the choice of words that he uses. He actually uses an Old Testament word um, that we translate from the Greek doulos to bondservant. And, and, and the Jews and anybody who was in that time frame would have known exactly what he's talked about. He did not say just a servant. He called himself a bondservant. Now, bondservant is unique in the fact that it denotes someone who is owned by someone else, and that person has given up his rights and has become subservient and dependent upon that other person. So, Lord, this is what Paul's saying. We have given up our rights. We have subservient to you and 100% dependent on you for the rest of our lives. See, the term comes out of Exodus chapter 21 when a slave decided he didn't want his freedom on the year of Jubilee, every seven years you were to release your, your slaves. If a slave said, I want to work for my owner forever till I die, he could become a bondservant. 
And they would take his earlobe and put it on a doorpost, the text says. You can read it. It's in Exodus 21. And they drove it all through it. Now, I know piercings got big now, but it's a little different. So, you know, if you get a new ear pierced, I want you to think about this. <laughs> Who are you slave to? Because that's what it meant then. And they drove it all through. And, and that hole told everybody that this person belongs to somebody else and he's completely 100% percent depended upon him for the rest of his life. That's, a, that's quite a term. In fact, 1 Corinthians 7.22, Paul kind of uses the same thing. He says, for he who is called us, he who is called by the Lord as a slave is, is, is the Lord's free man. Likewise, he who is called a free man is Christ's slave. We're his slaves. So Paul introduces his book not with his authority as apostle, but with the authority of a bondservant. I belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just me, Timothy too. I wonder if Timothy had anything to do with that. Hey, whoa, whoa, hold on here. You putting my name in there? No, I think Timothy willingly was because he went on to go take a very difficult church in Ephesus and he was Paul's right-hand man. Notice a couple other things as we look at the introduction to this. Look at the second part of verse 1. It says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. To all the saints... It's an interesting term, isn't it? Today, if you use the word saint in our society, certain things are going to come to mind. Certain religions have sainthood. They uh, anoint certain people after maybe many, many generations and centuries to sainthood because of something they did. But that's not how the Bible uses it at all. It is the word hagias, the word we get holy sanctification from. We get this term shortened, the word saint. This is one who is set apart for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are saints. You and I are saints. This morning together, gathered at Grace Bible Church, are the saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saints. And you go, well, I don't feel like a saint some days. It doesn't matter. The Lord said you're mine. You belong to me. I set you apart for my use. And see, Paul wants to teach him, even in his introduction, he wants people to realize who they are in Christ Jesus. What is their position in Christ Jesus? You are a saint in, positional, right? You're positioned in Christ, immersed in Christ. You are a saint in him. You are holy and set apart in Jesus Christ. Not in your church, not in your personhood, not in your good behaviors, not in your works. You are holy and set apart in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is your position as a believer. Do you see why you can never be lost? You see why the teaching of loss of salvation is absolute heresy? Because you're saying that Christ can't keep you. You're saying that your, your problems and, and your foolishness or whatever it may be is greater than the grace of God. See, you may never have been saved and you thought you were. That's a whole different thing. Paul says they went out from us because they're never part of us. But if you're truly saved, you're in Christ. You are the holy ones. You are the ones blameless before God because of the work of the Lord Jesus. And he's put you in Christ. In fact, Romans 8 says you're a joint heir with Christ. So whatever Christ gets, you'll get these are staggering terms that he speaks of believers. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't, don't miss who you are in Christ. And if you do, if you miss it, if you forget it, you'll live, you'll struggle in life. And, and life is difficult, and we all have struggles, but these are the things that remind us that these men and women, these boys and girls who are in the church of Philippi, they're not just anybody. They're holy ones. Set apart for God in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice he says, who are in Philippi identifies this group. This is important. There is the local church. Yes, we're part of the universal church. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you could travel with me and we could go overseas and we could meet brothers and sisters over there and we're part of the same church, the church of Jesus Christ, universally. But God has unique roles for the individual church, what we call the local church. You are believers, you are the hagias, the saints that gather at Grace Bible Church. He's ordained you to be here and be a part of a group of people who are called the body of Christ. And he identifies this. And he does this letter after letter after letter. To know that you're, you're, it's more than that. 
That's why we, we talk about membership occasionally here. Because you say, you go, hey, here's my hat. I'm throwing it in the ring. I'm with you guys. I see, your, I see that God has called me to come here. And Paul identifies these saints who are in Philippi. Last little statement there in verse 1, he says, including the overseers and deacons. Here he uses the word episkopos. Um, this is the word we, the, old, the old King James translated bishop. This is the term that is, coincides with elder, pastor, overseer. And, and then he says the deacons, these are the deaconate, this is the serving ones is the idea here. And, and what he does, I want you to understand this, is he's including the saints and the leadership as a church. He is not saying the saints and then you got these guys that are way up here. Oh no. But he wants you to know there's a family that meets there. And every family has leadership, right? Every family has those who, who children submit to. and there's, It's just family. This is a family, a welcome to the family. Hey, saints, holy ones who are in Christ at Philippi, and this includes overseers and deacons. They're not above this. They're part of this. It's a warm welcome. Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 1, he says that we receive a same, you receive the same faith as ours. I love that passage. 2 Peter chapter 1, 1. Write it down, look at it. Peter did not have a greater faith than anybody else in the church. Because faith's a gift from God. He doesn't say, well, we're going to give these leadership a little more faith. We'll sprinkle some on those other people. No! He opens your mind to the Lord Jesus Christ in the need of a Savior, whether you're 6 or 60. And he gives you faith so you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of you don't have that faith yet. Ask him. Say, Lord, will you give me faith to believe in Jesus Christ for salvation? Ask him to give you that. Oh, he'll give it to you. And he'll make you part of the saints that meet at Grace Bible Church. Isn't that beautiful? Second point here is what did God want the church of Philippi to do? Let me just give you a quick rundown of what we're going to see. In the next coming weeks here, next week, we're going to look at this this plan that God has for each and every person. Look at verse 6. I'm confident for this very reason that he who began a good work in you were perfected until the day of Jesus Christ. Every one of us have an absolute personal plan that God has laid out for you. You go, oh, come on. He's got a plan for somebody who has great gifts and can do all these things. The Bible is going to teach us next week that God has laid down from the foundations of the world a plan for your life. And you go, well, what do I got to do? Well, the Bible says he's going to see it through. He is going to see you through to the day of the Lord. He's going to bring you through it. Could be fiery at some times, could be difficult, but he's going to see you through it. And so he writes trying to encourage them, trying to get them to still abound more and more in their growing knowledge of the one who is going to see them through. Verse 12 and through, through down through 20, he's going to talk about the difficulties of imprisonment. And not so much what he's going through is that there's those out there that are abusing the gospel. But he'll say, if Christ is being preached, I can praise the Lord for that. He says, see, they got Paul's in jail. Good, we can get rid of him. Now we can go get to start our own stuff. We can draw attention to ourselves. See, Paul sees that happening. But he's going to write, hey, look, if the gospel's being preached, I'm okay with that. He's going to try to help believers settle in and stay busy about the things of the Lord. Paul also, as you look down verse 21 and to the end of the chapter, got a glimpse into heaven. Corinthians records this. We'll look at this when we get to this. Now, can you imagine this? God lets you look into heaven and then says, stay here on earth. That's not fair. But Paul, Paul saw it better. This is the sacrifice. This is why he loved Jesus so much and loved his church. that He says, it's better for me to stay here. I love you all, but if he gives me a peek, I might go. <laughs> Paul's a better man. And, and you think of this, what he's going to do. So he's going to teach us that. And then you're going to get to chapter 2, and he's going to show us what Christ-likeness is. He's going to demonstrate what we call the kenosis passage. It's a Greek word that says where the Lord veils his deity, empties himself, and takes on man. It's one of the most beautiful passages of all the scriptures for, under, for us to understand the God-man. 
the hypostatic union of Christ, both God and man, and how God honored him and glorified him because he died and was resurrected for us and, and established him at the right hand of the throne. And that, at that fact, every knee will bow, and we'll see how that flushes out. And then he's going to talk about a couple of men towards the end of two, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus almost dies. He's sent from Philippi. He's one of their pastors. He almost dies coming to take care of Paul. Paul sends him back and praises him. He's sending Timothy on to Ephesus, and he gives some great words of encouragement. Chapter 3 is a great testimony of Paul. There's a lot of people out there saying a lot of false doctrine. He calls them dogs. We're going to learn that there's times where Paul uses very strong language, those who oppose Jesus Christ. It's very strong. But he goes back to say, look, I got nothing. I don't bring anything to the table. It's the most clear, one of the most clearest presentations in the gospel in chapter 3. And then he's going to teach you to press on. He's going to teach you to press on in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then towards the end, he's going to show us what excellence looks like. When you're worried, when you're full of fear, he is going to teach us how we press on in the Lord Jesus Christ, how we receive our joy in Jesus Christ. It is a phenomenal book. Third point this morning. The saints who belong to the joy giver. Look at two through four. This is fascinating. Just some quick thoughts here, again, as introduction. Two, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Two words there, grace and peace. You see them? They're amazing words. They're words that only believers have. Now, people that are not saved can be gracious, but they have not received saving grace. Grace to you. Peace to you. I'm going to give you what you don't deserve, and I'm going to give you a peace that passes all understanding through Jesus Christ. These are terms that believers hold on tight to. We see these as absolutely important to our faith. And, he, and even his introduction, he greets people this way. We should greet people. Hey, fellow partakers of grace and peace, how are you doing this morning? We're so glad you're here. And then notice what he does in verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrances of you. It's a fascinating word. He uses the word Eucharist, Eucharisto here. We get the, the term Eucharist from this. A, a term, again, that gets a little bit of abuse in today's religious world. But it literally means I celebrate Thanksgiving every time I think of you. It's fascinating. November 25th, we are really going to engage in Eucharistic evening. Ron's going to lead us in praise, prayer, and pie. And pie is an important part of that. But the Eucharist end of it is the first part. We're going to gather on Tuesday night. We're going to shut down community groups that week. And we're all going to come here. And we are going to praise the Lord. And we're going to pray. Pray. That's it's this word. This, this is where Eucharist comes from. It's not some r- ritual act. It is the fact that Paul engages in Eucharistic prayers, Eucharistic thinking, every time he thinks of this church. Now, Ted is working on us to get more mission-minded here. I wonder if our missionaries that we support, every time they think of the Church and Grace Bible Church in Hollister, do they give thanks to God for us? Are we communicating with them? Do they look at us and say, hey, we are so thankful every time we think of you that you guys are participating in the gospel with us? Because that's what Paul says of Philippi. Every time, every time I think of you, I fall into a deep thanksgiving for the Lord Jesus Christ and for what God has done in your life. I wonder if our missionaries do that. I I, I hope we pray for them. I hope that happens. Look at verse 4 with me. Always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all. Now, again, these are simple introductions, but there's fun things to kind of look at in here. He uses the word denais in here. Denais is not the normal word for prayer. If you look down in verse 9, he says, In this I pray. This is where he uses um, 
proslukomai, which is the normal word we see for prayer, the one we saw in Ephesians 1 this morning. That's a normal Greek word. But here he uses the word denes here. Now, denes means I am petitioning God for you. I'm praying in a petitionary way for you. Every time I think of you, I, have, I, I exalt, I give thanksgiving to God, and here's what I do when I think of you. I petition God on your behalf. That's pretty cool. When Paul thought of the church of Philippi, and we know a couple of that are in there, right? What's one? Who's the first one? Lydia, remember her? And a Philippian jailer and his family. So that's all I really know of at this point right now. Well, now think, every time he thought of Lydia and those women that were praying that he preached Christ to and God opened their hearts, he thought about petitioning for them. Isn't that amazing? He petitions. He goes before the God of the universe and says, I'm petitioning for Lydia. I'm petitioning for the Philippian jailer who is in desperate need of your care and concern. He has a difficult job. He works in a difficult environment. That's how he prayed for this church. And that's how we should pray for one another. And pastors should pray for the church in that way. Oh, Lord, care for them. Meet their needs, Lord. Oh, so-and-so is in hurting. They're, they're struggling. They're, they're wrestling with doubt. But we petition. And that's what he was doing for them here. And notice the result of these petition prayers, these petitious or petitioning prayers. Look at verse 4. Always offering prayer with joy. See, when you pray for somebody in Christ, oh, you're going to get joy. See, some of us don't have joy because we don't pray much. Our, our, our prayers are always, oh, Lord, I need this, I need that, I need this, we do this for me, we get rid of this person, we do whatever. Paul says, when I petition for you, I do it with joy. It's a joy to go to the Lord and pray for one another. It's a joy. That's why we have a prayer chain. That's why you call my office and you say, hey, pastor, I'm going through this. It is an absolute joy to call you on the phone or come by your house or just to pray in a staff meeting or pray in an elders meeting to beg God for your behalf. We find great joy in that. And when the elders stand up here and they say, hey, put a prayer request on a card, we want to hear those, and we want to pray for you. Because it brings us joy to bring you before the Lord. And Paul found great joy doing that. Look at the last thought, number four. The result of the joy giver's work. Look at this verse five. This is fascinating. In view of your, of your participation in the gospel, your Bible might say partnership or fellowship, from the first day until now. So he's praying in this petitious way. He has great joy. He, does, he thanks God every time he prays. But here's the result of it is he, he's praying and he's thanking God and he's finding great joy because Philippi participates, partners with him, fellowships with him in the gospel. He's just not saying, hey, you guys are just the greatest group of people. I'm going to write a letter as you being an example and we're going to placard your church in front of everybody because you are really good people. The reason that he has such joy and why he prays the way he prays is because they participate in the gospel. It's a fascinating phrase, though. The, the phrase in the Greek is a koinia huron es ulagalion, meaning the fellowship of your gospel. We fellowship in your gospel. Now, that's, that's a fascinating phrase. Philippi says, Paul, we know you're in prison, we know that you have gone around and planted these churches. We want to be involved. One of the things we pray as leadership is we say, Lord, we want to know where you're working and we want to be involved with it. I, I, we pray that all the time. Where are you working and can we be involved? You're working in the Harvest Festival? You're working in our missionaries? Are you working in this family? This single person that's going through struggles? Where are you working so we can participate, so we can be in it? And he doesn't use just this word, a word we would think from participation. He uses koinia. That's the word we get, fellowship. So, so there's that idea that we are indebitably linked into the gospel because fellowship is that we're linked together through Jesus Christ, not just talk about golf and 
49ers and maybe the Giants. Um, uh, it is this in linked together. Fellowship is linked together with Jesus Christ. And he says, look, I'm, I'm finding such joy because you are linked, you are fellowshiped, you are united to me and together with the gospel. It's a fascinating thought. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Real quickly, I want you to see this. He's writing of this Philippi church and the other churches in the Macedonian area. And he's writing to a very wealthy church that's not giving much. <laughs> and I believe he's speaking particularly of Philippi in this passage. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of of, of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of, here's our word, participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. Oh, wow. See, he's given testimony to a church that should be way, way above their giving. He's saying, look, there's a church in Philippi who are poor, they're afflicted, they're, they're persecuted, and they're given way, way above what we ever expected from them because they want to participate in the gospel. See, we never want you to give because, well, I go to church, and that's what you do. We want you to give because of the gospel. Because Jesus died, and he beat death, and he came out of that grave, and he saved your soul. That's why you give. And that's what he's so excited about this church in Philippi, because you participated, you fellowshiped with, you partnered with us in the gospel. And notice it says in the last phrase here, from the first day until now. So can you imagine what he's saying? Lydia, thank you. At the birth of the church, down by that river, when you received Jesus Christ as your Savior, the church began partnering with us. Philippian jailer, that night, after we had been beaten so severely, and God gave us joy for, for being beat for him, and we sang praises, and the earthquake happened, and the chains fell off, and you drew your sword. And there God rescued your life and your soul you started participating with us. Isn't that amazing? It, I was thinking this week, I said, Lord, I'm going to try to think between the lines here. Don't let me go too far. But how many of those people in jail that night became part of that church? I mean, you, you see these guys singing. It doesn't mean much to you till there's an earthquake and chains fall off. And the guy's like ready to plunge a sword and bring a light and he's saved. And, he, and, and then the next day, all these, these, these towns the town council comes and, and pleads for you not to sue them. <laughs> and they see all this happen, and they said, I don't know who this Jesus is, but man, I want to know him. And I think the church took off. And, and here, look at your verse. He says, from the first day until now, you keep participating with us. Oh. I wrote in my notes, I said, Christ plus Philippians plus the gospel equals joy. Let me say it this way. Christ plus grace Bible plus the gospel equals joy. You want joy? Engage in the gospel. I wrote down just eight things and I'll quit with this. Here's how we participate. We participate by sharing grace with people. Salvation. You need to be gracious how you share salvation, but you share salvation with people. You, you do it through a faith, a gift of faith. You humbly say, God, you gave me what I did not deserve, so I could never boast before you. So we participate through grace, through faith, through prayer and thanksgiving. We need to be a praying church, a, thanks, a thankful church. We participate through true agape love, setting our own needs aside and ministering to one another, ministering to those in the body and out of the body, loving them so we can share the gospel with them. Meeting needs. And there's someone who is in need. I heard this week that we have a, a gal in our church that needs rides to and from church. 
Talk to Lloyd afterwards. He's trying to organize that. When we meet needs, we participate in the gospel. We bring people here who can't get here because they don't own um, a car or some for some other reason. You bring them here, they hear the gospel. God changes their lives. They participate in the furtherance of the gospel. Meaning, not only in Hollister here, but beyond the walls of Grace Bible Church, we participate by making sure it goes out. Crisis Pregnancy Centers. Hollister Pregnancy Center. Just down the street, gospel's got to go out there. We've got to be a part of that. Got to feed those who are in need so we can share the gospel with them. That's locally. Now we're in Judea. Now we go a little farther in Samaria. We think about Jews for Jesus and, and those who are giving the gospel out in, in the United States and home missions and planting churches in rural areas and inner city. And, and then we go beyond that from Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth. And we start thinking about our missionaries, the Philippines and India and, and around the world. This is how we participate. And we pray for people who have been set apart from the world. As soon as you're set apart from the world, now you become a target. And we pray for that. And we participate with those people who are Christians. And finally, the way we participate is we know we're in a spiritual warfare. Satan hates you. He hates your Savior. He hates your God. He hates this church. He hates everything about God. And we've got to realize what we're involved in. This is not about flesh and blood, but it's about principalities and powers and rulers of this world. And we participate by helping each other put on our helmets of salvation and our breastplate of righteousness and shod our feet with the gospel and the belt of truth around us and the, spirit, the sword of the Spirit in our hand. We participate in that and we engage in community groups and study groups and, and praying for one another and get ready for that war. This is how we participate. Father, we want to fall in love with the Savior of the Church of Philippi and the Savior of the Church of Grace Bible Church of Hollister. So Lord, we pray that you would help us as we study this book to be men and women, boys and girls, who find great joy from the joy giver. And we participate with him. Lord, we bless your name today. Hear our last praise to you this afternoon and, and as we go to serve you in different ways, Lord. May you be first and foremost in our life. In Jesus' name.